Welcome to Talking Biotech, the podcast dedicated to exploring the latest advancements in biotechnology, sponsored by Calabra, the R&D software that accelerates scientific discovery with AI. Each week, we'll dive into the latest innovations and discoveries with industry leaders and pioneers. Now, here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulta. I want to see science serve a useful purpose to improve the standard of living for all people. Why is anyone fighting food advance? A very small percentage of the world's population is fortunate enough to have the luxury of turning down food. We've arranged a society based on science and technology. There was nobody understands anything about science and technology. You can't build a peaceful world on empty stomachs and human misery. You're listening to Talking Biotech, a weekly podcast illuminating issues in agricultural and medical biotechnology. Your questions and concerns are addressed using a science-based approach with the goal of driving discovery to application with communication. Now here's your host, Dr. Kevin Fulton. Welcome to the Talking Biotech Podcast. It's the weekly podcast about breakthroughs in medicine and agriculture that have to do with biotechnology and uh, how those applications can help people and a planet. I'm Kevin Fulta, and today we have uh, returning guests to the podcast, uh, Dr. Anthony Sheldon or Tony Sheldon from uh, Cornell University um, is back to visit us on the podcast. Hi, uh, Professor Shelton. Hi, Ken. How are you doing? Well, I shouldn't ask that if you're down in Florida, but uh, <laughs> my sympathy goes out for you. Well, we yeah, we just uh, had the hurricane, but all's well. You know, I mean, we did okay up here in Gainesville, but, uh, you know, still out of gas and uh, lots of traffic. So, you know, people are sorting it out, but, you know, we'll survive. <laughs> so one of the big questions for you is, could you give us an update on the Beringel, which was the subject of episode number 48 in the series. Where is that project right now? So I'm the project director of this USAID-funded project on BT eggplant or BT Beringel in, in Bangladesh, where it is out in the field, and then also in the Philippines, where uh, we hope to have it out in the field once the regulatory dossier is submitted. In Bangladesh in 2014... Started out with 20 farmers. Next year is 108. The next year was about 300 farmers. This year, we had 6,500 farmers adopted. So that was a tremendous uh, jump up from the adopters. Um, and the, the, the project is going well. We certainly need, uh, and we're emphasizing stewardship of this product because we certainly want to make sure that it's long lasting in in the field so in fact we just finished a big workshop in india where we had the bangladesh scientists come over to really learn about stewardship of biotechnology uh, of products of biotechnology that's how it's going i I must also say that 
Um, it's very heartening when I was out in the field with some farmers, and uh, one particular farm I remember quite vividly. There was a farmer, his father, and his daughter out in the field, and I asked him how many times he had sprayed brinjal or eggplant, and he said normally he sprays about a hundred times during the season, and that's for the conventional. So he went over to where he had the conventional uh, brinjal, and every one of the fruit was infested. Then we went over to his field of BT brinjal. Every one of the fruit that we looked at was perfectly clean. I asked him how many times he sprayed the BT brinjal because it only it does not affect aphids or white flies or some of the other pests. Mm-hmm. He said he had to spray twice for that. So a total of two sprays versus over 100 sprays. You know, you get a remarkable satisfaction from knowing that you're actually really helping people uh, in, in a developing country like Bangladesh with this product out there. So we are on the journey, I think, to have um, BT Brinjal uh, fully utilized in, in Bangladesh. Um, again, we went from you know, 300 or farmers up to uh, 6,500 just in this year. And our emphasis right now is really on stewardship. Oh, that sounds excellent. I'm really excited about this, and hopefully in the Philippines and then hopefully in India eventually as well, because this could be a tremendous asset for people in that part of the world um, where this is a staple crop. And uh, I hope that maybe in the next uh, you know month or two, or you know whenever you feel that you've got some news on that one that you'd like to share, maybe the next big breakthrough, let's get back together and revisit the eggplant here on the podcast. Okay, be yeah. happy to do so. That sounds good. Today I want to talk about diamondback moth, and this one is uh, this one really is um, is your baby, isn't it? I mean, this project. Um, well, it's a collaboration between OxyTech who's a developer of the, of the technology and, uh, and, our, and our program here at Cornell. First of all, before we get into the details of the technology, what is the major problem that needs to be solved? Like, what is the issue that would cause everyone to develop this kind of technology? Okay, well, I've worked on Diamondback Moth for about 40 years, and... Uh, it is a remarkable insect. It's only the size of a couple of grains of rice, but the devastation that it can cause uh, is absolutely amazing. It's a global pest of crucifer crops, or brassica crops, um, cabbage, cauliflower, Brussels sprouts, canola, Chinese cabbage, etc. So it's a global pest. Uh, really devastating in in China, India, throughout Southeast Asia, and also in in the U.S. too, uh, especially down in in your area in Florida and in Georgia. One of the problems with diamondback is that it evolves resistance to every insecticide that is used against it. And some resistance, in fact, can occur in in less than two years. Mm -hmm. So... If, if you look at a, if you think about a poster for the most wanted uh, insect, <laughs> um, this would be diamondback would be way way up there. It, it's uh, a leader in developing resistance, 
uh, to insecticides. One of the reasons is that it produces um, a generation in, in just a couple of weeks in the field. Um, there are many different uh, tools in the toolbox that growers can utilize, um, but using genetically engineered insects to try and control the pest population is something that I think can be a very fruitful um, endeavor. Probably some of your listeners might be aware of the project on sterile insect technique, which is something that started back in the 1950s and continues today, in which insects are irradiated to become sterile and then released in mass by an airplane to create a barrier so when when insects are moving up, say, from Latin America for, like, the, the screw worm, which is a pest of, cat, of cattle, mm-hmm. livestock, as the insects move up from Latin America, the, uh, ma- there are massive releases of these irradiated uh, insects that cause a barrier. So when the females are moving up into the southern part of the U.S., the females are greeted with uh, sterile males. And so the sterile males mate with the females, and then the offspring are, uh, uh, there's no offspring produced. So actually it's really interesting because in the last chapter of Silent Spring, by Rachel Carson in 1962. She has, her, her chapter is entitled something like uh, The Way Forward, and she highlights this sterile insect technique as a way of controlling pest populations, basically taking the innate mating habit of an insect and turning it against itself. Yeah, yeah, that's. That, I remember reading that, and uh, even recently, that's come back to me. And I was hoping to write something about that because it really has gone full circle. And this new technology really does the same thing, but just with much more precision. And do you want to uh, maybe spend a minute or two? Just what is this? How does it work? And how do you make sterile insects in a laboratory that are genetically engineered that are still capable of? Um, of generating more of them. It's a little bit of a, 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 a dilemma because what you need to do is to produce massive amounts of these insects. So they really can't be sterilized uh, in all stages of the rearing operation. So what Oxitec has done is they have developed a, an on off switch. So, and, and it's, it is uh, turned on by the, the, the presence of uh, tetracycline. So if, you have, if you're mass-rearing the males and the females, then you put tetracycline in the diet. This allows both males and females to be produced. At the, at the generation in which you are going to be doing releases of the males and you basically, in that generation, you don't include tetracycline in the diet. So all of the females in the, on the diet will die 
and all you're left with are males. And so the males are the ones that you release. And it's quite a clever way of, of doing this because you need to produce males and females, but at some point in time, you only want to reduce, want to release the males. So this uh, tetracycline uh, switch um, is a very, very clever uh, technique to do this. Yes. What, happen- what happens when you release the males in the, fem- in, in the field is that the, uh, the males will mate with females and then the uh, no female offspring will be produced. So it's, a, it's basically called a self-limiting technique and it works quite effectively. We've tried it in, the, in a, a long-term study in the greenhouse, and it worked very, very effectively in, in causing the diamondback moth population to crash. Yes, yeah, so it does it in a generation, which is probably the most important part, because you, there's no way to evolve resistance around it. Um. This has certainly come up as a question, you know, will insects evolve resistance to this technology like they have done to uh, conventional insecticides? And as we thought about this, it probably has to be more of a behavioral resistance that the um, wild insects that you're trying to control, maybe they might have a preference for um, other wild insects rather than for the genetically engineered insects. But we haven't seen that so far, and, but it's certainly something that we have to, have to watch out for. Insects are pretty amazing uh, organisms, and um, you have to be very, very careful. Speaking about very careful is, you know, it took us about a year and a half to get this permit um, because we had to um, work with USDA on, on this, and they then sent out the application for internal review and also an external review. And then we also were required to uh, work through Cornell's Institutional Biosafety Committee for, for this, because it's really the first open field release of a genetically engineered insect for, for pest control. Now, there's, it's, it's a natural progression from what has been done over almost 70 years with the uh, sterile insect technique. Um, so billions and billions of insects have been released for that, both for the American screwworm, this pest of, of livestock, but also for uh, some fruit fly species. And in fact, back in 1990, I was... Uh, working with the Atomic Energy Agency to try and get a sterile insect program for diamondback moth. <clears throat> this was in Indonesia and Malaysia. Well, we could get a, get the diamondback moths to be sterile, but they couldn't fly because, you know, using radiation for sterilization is like using a sledgehammer. So you might get sterilization, but the insects certainly don't behave in their normal way. By using genetic engineering, though, you can just make some tweaks in the genome of, of an insect and really leave it relatively intact 
except for a lethal trait that you're introducing into the population. It's actually a really interesting parallel because when, you know, we look at vegetable and fruit breeding, how radiation was a very acceptable and promising way to induce genetic variation in new traits. And people never really got too upset about that. But when you gravitate to the really precise mechanisms with genetic engineering, people had very different feelings. And maybe it's the same in insects too, but I haven't seen a whole lot of um, pushback against this, at least in the major media. And uh, so far, everything looks pretty well accepted. Is that your perception as well? Well, there has been an effort by um, the organic community to stop the trials, uh, including writing, having a letter-writing campaign to the governor. Um, so I, you know, it's, it's interesting because I, in my position, I work with I work on developing pest management programs, and I work with organic growers. I work with conventional growers. I work with biotech growers. So some of the people that I work with, the organic growers, you know, they're kind of wondering what I'm up to here. And uh, we've had a couple of open forums in the Geneva area where we're trying to explain to to interested parties, you know, what we're doing and why we're doing it and the consequences of it. And I can uh, sit down and have a beer with uh, the organic farmers and, you know, they're quite uh, interested in the project. And some of them, you know, have, I've, I've received emails from organic growers who say, you know, we, we, we kind of wish you well and go forward with this project. But certainly the leadership of the organic community, you know, has drawn a line in the sand and said, uh, you know, we do not allow any synthetic uh, chemicals, and we do not allow genetic engineering. And then uh, it seems to me that uh, they um, have closed off some opportunities by drawing this line in the sand. If their goal is to, to develop more sustainable and uh, lower environmental impact practices, for agriculture, um, I think this and, and BT crops, for example, are, are really worth looking at very closely. And uh, I'm a little bit surprised that the mainstream organic growers are, are not um, adopting some of the biotechnology that could really help them in their goal of reducing uh, environmental hazards for uh, pest management. Yeah, and also just decreasing the cost of production of organic crops. I mean, they still have pest control issues and ways that they have to control, uh, obviously, pests. Uh, And so this just seems to be like a no-brainer to me, that this is the best solution to be able to eliminate the need for applications of BT or whatever that you use to control this thing on organic crops. So, again, it seems like those kind of arbitrary standards to, one, just omit or um, any kind of transgenic crops from organic production. But then on top of that, now to say the insects that would be invading uh, organically produced crops with that are non-transgenic, um, drawing a line with this seems really strange. But again, I think it's it's more the opposition to a concept, which is much more religious than it is scientific. I agree with yeah. you. I'll put it that way. But, <laughs> 
Also, if I get back to the to the BT eggplant or BT brinjal project in Bangladesh, I mean, to go from a, over 100 sprays down to two sprays and produce a crop that has no infestation by the eggplant fruit and shoot borer, think about the environmental benefit. Think about the economic benefit to growers. Um, you know, to me, the, the Bangladesh situation is, is really, really black and white. We can, we can help farmers. We can help the environment. Um, you know, so if, if an organic grower, you know, says, asks why in Bangladesh, you know, are they adopting this? I can tell them very clearly it's, it's, it is the best solution for the problem that they face. And I think that genetically engineered insects, you know, will be um, one of the tools that growers can use in the future. Based on, on the work that we're doing now, I mean, it's, it's, it'll be a few years before anything shows up. But if you look at what is being done in Brazil, for example, releasing millions and millions of genetically engineered mosquitoes to try and control dengue fever and Zika, um, you know, that, that's, that is accepted down in Brazil. In, in Florida, Oxitec has tried to run some trials, but there's been opposition to it. And, uh, you know, you get on the, on the video and you can see aerial sprays uh, going on in Florida to try and control these mosquitoes that are transmitting uh, Zika. Um, tell me, tell me why that is any <laughs> safer <laughs> than using genetically engineered insects. Well, we're talking yeah. today on the Talking Biotech podcast with Dr. Tony Shelton from Cornell University. And uh, we're discussing the genetically engineered diamondback moth and its recently re approved release. We'll be right back with more Talking Biotech. Hi, everybody. And thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech podcast. And when I look back over the first 100 episodes, I realize that we've really made quite a useful resource, especially considering the times ahead that over the course of the next short time, you're going to see good opportunities to deploy the Oxytech Mosquito back from the early episodes, the Aquabounty Salmon. You're also going to see the Arctic Apple and other new technologies start to show up actually on the market. It's more important than ever for us to understand what these technologies are and what these technologies aren't so that we can communicate them effectively with friends and family, co-workers and others that maybe don't understand this technology as well as they should. It's also a very good time for us to remember uh, how to talk to people. And going back through some of the episodes where we actually discuss communication and how a values-based discussion about biotechnology can be truly transformational and can be an effective way for us to talk to people who maybe don't understand these technologies and shouldn't just be flooded with facts. They really need to understand why this is important and why we value these kinds of technologies. So take a peek back through the first 100 episodes 
some of the early ones are a little rough. I mean, it really is amazing how much better it's got, and uh, it, it's uh, still got a long way to go. <laughs> but um, it's a pretty good resource. In the weeks ahead, we'll talk to Dan Voidtest from Calix, uh, a company working in gene editing. We'll talk to folks at Recombinetics and all of the companies that are now trying to move products and ideas forward with the hope of commercialization. It's a great time to tune in and understand these topics better and share them with friends. So thank you again for listening. It means a lot. And we'll talk to you later on the Talking Biotech Podcast. And welcome back to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Today we're talking with Dr. Anthony Shelton at Cornell University and talking about the release of the genetically engineered diamondback moth and uh, a pest that's really a problem. And one thing we didn't mention before is um, this is an invasive, isn't it? Uh, yes. It uh, came over to the U.S. in the, mid in the mid-1800s. Um you know, you can say it really doesn't belong here. Uh, like most of the the insect pests that we're dealing with are are invasive pests. So the diamondback moth is uh, is certainly one of those invasive pests that's really causing a lot of headaches for for growers uh, globally. Yeah, I know when uh, people talk about the risks, and one of the big ones that always comes up is okay. Maybe there's no risk to human health here, but what about to ecology and what about insect ecology? And, you know, does this thing have a role? And if it just was suddenly gone or, you know, this really worked well and you're able to really knock down the numbers, would there be any um, long-term ecological impact? So, again, you have to go back to uh, stating that this is an invasive pest and we had a – it had – Prior to its invasion, it, it, you know, the environment was doing doing quite well. <laughs> when it invaded, and growers tried to control it with uh, insecticides, most of these insecticides are, are pretty broad spectrum. So you're knocking off beneficial insects, as well as the diamondback moth. So you're affecting pollinators. You're affecting uh, natural enemies that help control pest populations. So you really get into a cycle of um, pesticide treadmill when you try and control uh, a pest using uh, these, you know, broad spectrum insecticides, especially one like diamondback moth that can evolve resistance to these insecticides faster than any of its natural enemies can evolve resistance to these insecticides. So we look at this as kind of a very species-specific uh, technique. Um, it doesn't affect pollinators. It doesn't affect biocontrol agents. It just affects diamondback moth. And maybe that's another important point, that a lot of times when you hear the opponents of these technologies speaking about it, like when uh, they speak about the mosquito, is, okay, you're going to release these m- mosquitoes that have this... Uh, <laughs> for lack of a better word, Terminator gene. Um, What happens if that gene escapes from this species and suddenly uh, kills all the bees? I mean, that that kind of stuff comes up all the time. And how tight is this uh, technology confined to the diamondback moth? Well, 
because it's a mating technology, the diamondback moth only mates with other diamondback moths. So the possibility of it, you know, go- going off over to some other insect is, uh, it's, it's, it's doesn't, doesn't happen. Um, there are species barriers between mating and, uh, so that that's not not a not a risk. Um, one of the other concerns that is brought up, though, are what about the proteins that are produced uh, in in these insects? You know, because these insects also contain a fluorescent marker, so they can be uh, followed uh, in 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 trials and uh, followed in the environment. So it's a fluorescent marker um, that's been shown to be perfectly safe no allergenicity or toxicity. So what would be the consequences of eliminating diamondback moth, say, in New York? And first of all, you're not going to eliminate it. What This technology is not gene drive. It is simply a way of controlling a pest population with multiple applications, very much in the same sense as like an insecticide. If the population is very high, then you would increase the dose or the uh, numbers of, of insects that you're, you're releasing. Um, if it's very low or not a pest problem, then you could just uh, use a very low dose, or if it's not a pest problem, no dose at all. So it has a lot of flexibility in it. And I think that's that's a, a crucial benefit. You know, if I think, you know, 30 years down the line, um, because that's what we, we need to do, I can't imagine um, the public acceptance of, you know, uh, in, say an air blast sprayer going through a vegetable field where you were trying to control diamondback moth using a, an insecticide. Um, but I can see, you know, 30 years down the line, releasing genetically engineered insects to try and control an, uh, a population that's in the field. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to slam insecticides because they've really done a lot of benefit for agriculture, but I think we all would agree that we want to reduce the use of insecticides, both from an economic and an environmental standpoint. No, I I agree. And I think that this kind of technology, you know, this is a problem that we created in terms of the spread of invasives. And so it's good that we're using the best technology available to help solve the problem. And to me, it doesn't make any sense, you know, across the board, those who listen to the podcast regularly know that, you know, I, I love technology. And how do we make things better using these cool tools that we have? And this just seems like a no brainer. But are there other um, risks that people have brought up, just even concerns, so that listeners who are encountered with those same questions have a good answer? I mean, anything that you th- can think of? Well, so there's been pushback from the organic community, as I mentioned before, and they have sent out email blasts to their members saying, you know, you want to eat genetically engineered dead insects in your in your produce. <laughs> <laughs> And this this kind of stuff, uh, and actually, you know, some of their members have um, pushed back from such sensational 
statements as that. But regardless, you know, they are trying to spread some fear that, you know, the insects that we release in a very, very isolated field in upstate New York, you know, will get into the organic uh, farms and they would then get decertified. Well, the they get decertified as organic and, and the, the, the legal precedents are very, very clear. Um, if a farmer is, an organic farmer is not using uh, any genetic engineering or synthetic uh, pesticides or fertilizers, um, but there's some adventitious presence due to a neighbor or something like that, the, the, the legal precedents are very, very clear that that farmer will not be decertified as an organic farmer. So I also have to ask, what happens if, you know, an organic farmer is releasing uh, ladybird beetles or parasites to try and control a pest population? Well, those insects are also going to die on the crop. And it's, it, isn't it the same thing? Well, it seems to me that uh, they're trying to make some arguments that may not really uh, hold up to uh, scrutiny. So where are we in terms of a timeline on the project? Are, right now, is it just cleared for release in field space near Geneva? Or is this something that looks like uh, how many years before it's actually deployed to control pest populations on the farm? Okay, well, what we're doing in Geneva is is to uh, evaluate this. We're doing the open field releases of, of diamondback moth. We have a very isolated field. Uh, it's about seven and a half acres in a part of the farm that's very isolated, surrounded by woods on, on three sides. And we've been making releases of the genetically engineered diamondback as well as a non-genetically engineered diamondback. And we're comparing uh, its behavior, its movement patterns in the field, its longevity in the field, and uh, making sure that it really behaves like uh, a normal diamondback. So we've been doing these uh, field releases since, since August, and uh, we'll continue until um, we get the first frost. We're also doing some releases in cages. These are large 12-foot by 12-foot cages that are in the field. Um, and then in there, we're looking at uh, some aspects of the behavior of diamondback moth in, in much more detail. So... We're, we're a ways from getting this commercialized, but we're doing, I think, the necessary uh, biological studies to determine uh, how effective this uh, uh, genetically engineered insect can really be. That's really great. I, I looked at the uh, OxyTech website, and they have uh, technologies in the pipeline for a number of different insects, like medfly and others. And uh, are you involved in any of those other projects? Uh, no, I'm not. Diamondback Moth has kind of <laughs> taken over my life, <laughs> this, this particular project. It is really, um, 
let's, let's say, paperwork intensive. I mean, we have, you know, uh, reporting standards to USDA, to Cornell Institutional Biosafety Committee. So there is, uh, right right now, this is about the <laughs> all I can handle. Um, <laughs> I, I totally understand that, too. I mean, we do recombinant DNA that stays in a laboratory and stays in a greenhouse. And the amount of paperwork we need to do and the traceability and every new construct, oh, geez, it's just such a headache to do this kind of work. Well, hopefully the... Uh, the bureaucracy will become less as as we uh, as a community becomes more uh, familiar with the technology. You all, you mentioned the OxyTech uh, website. We actually have a as part of our commitment to outreach education about this this project. We actually have a website. Uh, it's Shelton dot Cornell, and we have frequently asked asked questions about that, about the project, you know, what we're doing, why we're doing it, uh, et cetera. And then we're giving updates on that. We also have um, some uh, media stories about the project. In fact, there was a recent one in Scientific American. There was also a, a uh, one on in, in the Atlantic, on the Atlantic website about the story. So we're very open to trying to with people about what we're doing and why we're doing it and to make it more transparent. Um, that said, we, the, uh, the field is, is a very secure field. Um, we are not allowing people to uh, come in uh, just to observe it based on, you know, really requirements from USDA. We don't want people tramping through the field. Yeah, that makes sense. So with all the hassles and all the hurdles and all of the paperwork, why would you still want to do this? Because it's, we think it's a viable technology for the future. And as I think about climate change, you know, in, in New York, the diamondback moth does not, not overwinter here. So we get it in, as an invasive species uh, yearly. Some years are much, much worse than other years. But we know that with climate change, we're going to have them come in earlier. We're going to have more generations produced. And we really do need a, a, a way of controlling it that is more environmentally friendly than what we've had before. Um, I do a lot of work on biological control uh, of diamondback moth. And, you know, that can certainly help. But we do need a technology that is uh, more species-specific and can really be used uh, in, in these situations where the population is building up. So um, I know that there are other insect pests like the spotted wing drosophila, which is a pest of small fruits, and it's wreaking havoc uh, throughout the United States. Mm-hmm. Maybe Many of those small fruit growers never really had to spray before this invasive pest came in. So there's interest in, interest in using uh, genetic engineering for species like the spotted winged drosophila. I look yeah. back, if, if I think about, you know, uh, genetically engineering plants, 
So for like Diamondback Moth, we have also worked on genetically engineering the plants to express BT proteins. That's that's worked out uh, well. Hopefully that will be something utilized in the future. But if you have an insect like the spotted wing drosophila that feeds on so many different plants, everything from tomatoes to, to blueberries, are you going to genetically engineer all those crops? Well, maybe another approach is genetically engineer the insect that attacks all those crops. No, that sounds good. I know that we have a lot of problem with SWD down here. So that's uh, it's been a major issue increasingly on blueberries and uh, certainly on strawberries. So, uh, you know, any uh, it's good to see new technologies at least identifying the problem and potentially other solutions there. Is there any place else other than your website where people can learn about your efforts, um, say, in social media like Twitter or Facebook? Alliance for Science is a Gates-funded program that's based at Cornell to try and uh, be a, uh, how shall I say it, an advocate for different approaches to technology. And the Alliance for Science has kind of taken this on as one of their efforts that they want to see move forward. So if you get on Alliance for Science and uh, even, even subscribe to it, I would urge your listeners to do that. There is a lot of social media uh, on on the on this particular project. That's very good. It's an excellent suggestion. I've actually done a lot with the Alliance for Science um, in speaking there at the time with some of the fellows. And one of the most, you, when you sit with people who come from Nigeria or from Uganda, just or wherever uh, countries that maybe don't have access to the chemical controls that many others do. Um, it's really um, humbling. Uh, one gentleman named Klett, he stood up and said, well, why don't you just simply have people go pick the bugs off the plants and take them somewhere else? <laughs> <laughs> and, and this, I mean, it's a form of biological control, I guess. But um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, Dr. Tony Shelton from Cornell University, thank you so much for spending your time and for telling us about this really important issue. It's a, it's a big one on the tip of many people's tongues and appreciate you sharing your expertise. Sure. Thanks very much, Kevin. And thank you to Dr. Shelton and thank you the listener for Talking Biotech. Um, write us a review on iTunes. Uh, write us a review anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> write us a review uh, under a viaduct or an overpass in spray paint. <laughs> I can't really advocate for that, can I? No, I mean, don't do... <laughs> I'll do it that way. <laughs> and whatever you do, do not go under an overpass and write TalkingBiotechPodcast.com there. Okay, no matter what. Um, no matter what you do, do uh, not by any means scratch talking biotech podcast into like say a bathroom stall or something like that because that's vandalism and even though many people will see it and may be likely to tune into the podcast uh, it's uh, not an acceptable way to advertise and don't send pictures <laughs> no matter what do not send pictures of you or anyone <laughs> carving it into a picnic table, anything like that. No matter what, don't do that stuff. 
Um, especially if you're wearing a funny mask or a clown suit or something like that. It just is not good to do. Okay, anyway, I'm having too much fun. Thank you very much to Dr. Shelton. Thank you to you. Thank you to me. Uh, And I'm Kevin (laughs) Fulton. I guess I'm kind of punchy today. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll talk to you again next week. Thank you for listening to the Talking Biotech Podcast. Please send your suggestions for guests, comments, or questions to talkingbiotech at gmail.com. Please write a review on iTunes and recommend this podcast to a friend. More downloads and reviews raise the visibility of this podcast and help us reach a wider audience with science. You've been listening to Talking Biotech, sponsored by Calabra, the platform that bridges the gap between siloed research tools. With Calabra's electronic lab notebook, scientists can work together in real time, sharing data and insights with ease. Revolutionize your research collaboration. Sign up for a demo today at calabra.app, C-O-L-A-B-R-A dot A-P-P.